No church says that they don't want to grow or don't want to reach people uh, or don't want to uh, reach out to their community. There's not a single church on planet Earth that says that if you met with any church, you would say, do y'all want to grow and reach your community? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. And yet, across America, most churches are not only not growing, they are actually declining. And that's probably no news to you or no secret to you. So how in the world, how in the world do organizations who share the same mission, Jesus gave the mission of the church 2,000 years ago to go and make disciples. How in the world do organizations that share this same mission have different results and have different rates of success? And there's really one word for it, one reason, culture. And today we're going to begin talking about something uh, uh, that is going to help shape culture. My name is Carter McInnes. I'm lead pastor here. And if you're joining us at home, thanks so much uh, for welcoming me and our whole church into your living rooms or back screened in porches or wherever you are. And, and thanks so much for those of you uh, that are here. It's always good to see you. Culture can undermine mission. Now, some of you have seen this. You've probably been in an office that had a great mission, but a bad culture. Anybody ever had one of those? Culture, some of you are like, yes. Uh, culture can undermine mission. A company can have a mission to be a leader in their industry or to have the most profit or the most sales. But if they have a culture where everyone's lazy, everyone comes in late, they don't return calls, they don't return emails, everyone leaves early and always takes a few extra vacation days and they're allowed, it's not the mission that's the problem, it's the culture. And this can happen in the church too, right? A church can say, we have a great mission. Our mission is to go and make disciples. Uh, our vision is to invite and equip people to follow Jesus. We, we want to reach out to our community. But if the culture is, uh, of the church is such that anytime you begin making decisions to actually reach people and you're like, well, it would, we would be help. We could reach people if we would change a few things around the building, but you can't move that piece of furniture because Miss So-and-So donated that 30 years ago. And you just can't do that. Or we can't change the music because this group won't like it, even if it'll reach more people. And we don't want to make that group mad. Or we can't change the worship times because that group will not like it. And we can't make that group mad. We, so we can't make decisions that help move the mission forward because we've got a culture that says you can't do this for that and that and that. You ever seen churches struggle with that? See, that's not a mission problem. That's a culture that undermines the mission Recently, I was reading a Forbes magazine article that said this about culture. It said, culture is the single most important driver of organizational success. So we're going to talk about values. For the next six weeks, we're going to look at seven values that I don't think will only support our mission and help us fulfill our vision and move forward. I think they'll help us build the right kind of culture at Mountaintop. But I also think they're important for you. In fact, I think they'll help you build the right kind of culture in your life. And I, hope they'll, hope, I think they'll help you build the right kind of culture in your family, in your household. But they won't mean anything if we don't actually live them out. They won't do any good if we put them on the walls of the hallway or we put them in the atrium and we say like, oh yeah, there's our, there's our values, but nobody really does them. You've probably seen that sometimes at an office where you have like values on the wall, but nobody actually does them. 
We actually have to live them out if we want them to make a dent in our culture. Because here's, it's not just values. Lived values create culture. What you actually live out. And I think they'll be better not for our church and build the right kind of culture for our church. I think they'll build the right kind of culture for our own personal lives. Because the truth is, I wish I could claim these as new ideas, but they're not really new ideas. They're just some pretty clear biblical principles that we're going to see over the next six weeks. So the one I want to talk about today is that we are for one. Basically, we reach out. We're always reaching out. We always want to reach out for that one person because we believe one matters. We believe one soul matters to God. We believe one sinner redeemed matters. We believe one life change really counts. And we always want to be about looking out and reaching out for that one. That one. And we think that we all ought to have one person in our lives that we're reaching out to, that we're investing in, that we're inviting into a relationship with God because one matters, really, really matters. So we're going to talk about what it means, what God thinks about one. And if we're going to talk about one, that means we're going to talk about numbers, and that means I'm going to make you do a little math on Sunday morning, all right? I know some of you are now thinking, you're watching, no one told me there'd be math involved today, but it's just really quick, because to understand this story that we're going to read, you got to understand how differently kingdom math operates from our math, what we judge as success. And percentages and statistics and this kind of math actually is a part of our everyday lives, even if you don't know it. We judge success by percentages. Let me give you an example. 30.3%. How many of you would judge that a success in anything? Was that a success? You're like, no, it's not too good. If I do 30, if like you had an employee that's like, I get it right 30% of the time, boss. It's not so good, right? 30.3% is not a great success rate. But if you are a baseball player, that will get you into the Hall of Fame. Chipper Jones' batting average was 303. And if you bat 300 for your lifetime, that means you only get a hit three out of every 10 times. And that doesn't seem like great, but hitting a Major League Baseball is one of the hardest things to do. And you'll be a Hall of Famer. Now, what about 90%? That sounds better, right? Let me ask you something about 90%. <clears throat> How many of you look at the health code score at a restaurant when you go in? 90%, are you eating yay or nay? Nay? Some say nay. Some say, some say yay. I figure if it's a barbecue joint and they're over 85, they're trying too hard. <laughs> right? I mean, it needs to be a little bit of a hole in the wall place if it's going to actually have good barbecue. 90% for health, maybe that's like where your threshold is for where, where uh, health codes. Uh, and so maybe it's, that's a little low. You're looking for more like 95, 95 96%. But 90%? In school, students know that'll get you an A, right? 90%. 90, it counts the same as 100, doesn't it, right? Just give me that 90%. What about 99.99%? What, somebody said it? That's what? That's hand sanitizer, right? <clears throat> and seven months ago, 99.99% was good enough for us, wasn't it? But all of a sudden, 
Boy, 99 point, not like we want to know like, well, which is the 0.01% that it doesn't kill? Because there's one I'm really interested in the hand sanitizer killing right now. But we know that that's almost impossible because nothing's 100. No batter hits the ball 100% of the time. No, even the cleanest restaurant can't score 100 on every health inspection. Even the best student doesn't make 100 on every test. No one can do it 100% of the time. But here's what you need to know about kingdom math that is really different from our math. For God, only 100% is acceptable. Only 100% is acceptable to God. And today we're going to look at a story in which Jesus reveals something about the heart of God that his heart skews, that his heart leans to those that are far out, to those that are far gone, to those, well, that are that one. God's heart is for one. Now, if you're not far off, what does that mean for you or me? Because that's, that's kind of the way I feel. Does that mean that God doesn't care about us? What if, what if we're already reached? What if we're already here? Does God, does God not have a heart for us? Well, here, as we read the story, here's what I think you're going to come to understand, and you're going to see that we should all be really glad that God has a heart for those that are far off and why 100% is the only thing that's acceptable to God. This story happens because of a... I won't say it's a confrontation, but it's a situation with a group of people called Pharisees. Now, Pharisees often get a bad rap. Uh, preachers like me have talked about how bad the Pharisees are, but the truth is they weren't much unlike Jesus. They were religious scholars. They knew the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, forwards and backwards. In fact, they probably had to memorize the whole thing. How many of us have the Old Testament memorized? They were teachers, they were religious leaders, they were called rabbis and teachers, much like Jesus. It's just that Jesus went about things much differently than those that are typically known as Pharisees. So this is what it says in Luke 15, and we're gonna be looking at verses, beginning in uh, verse one of Luke 15 and go all the way through verse seven. It says this in Luke 15, and if you don't have a Bible, take one. There's some shelves that have some Bibles that we'd love to give you if you're at home. Uh, make sure you download the Bible app on your phone or on your tablet. It's a great resource. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He was teaching. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man uh, welcomes sinners and eats with them. This was scandalous. This was unheard of. This was how Jesus was different than many of the religious leaders. I mean, rabbis taught, but they didn't hang out with sinners, much less eat with sinners. Because when you ate with someone, it was friendship, it was relationship, it was Intimate, that's what we do. We eat with people we are friends with, with people we love. We eat with our families. You see, the Pharisees often use their position for their own political posturing, but not Jesus. Jesus used his position to give priority to people with no position. He seemed to use his position for outsiders. So what about us, church? What are we going to use our position for? What are you going to use the position that God has given you 
for? Well, Jesus responds with a story for the Pharisees and the sinners and tax collectors who were all listening. He said this, then Jesus told them a parable. It's, it's kind of like a metaphor. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses just one of them, one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls all his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. The story makes perfect sense to anyone that hears it. I mean, they're like, well, yeah, that, that's probably right. That's what you do. In fact, there's almost a rhetorical question in it. Did you catch it in verse 4 when Jesus said, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And everybody listening would go, yep, that's what he does. Now, for you and me, we're not shepherds, so this doesn't make much sense to us. But if Jesus were asking this question in our culture, he would say, hey, come on, come on. Haven't you lost your keys before? Haven't you lost your phone before? And we're like, oh, yeah. And what happens when you lose your keys? You turn the house upside down looking for the keys or looking for the phone, right? You're flipping cushions. And while you are looking for the keys or while you are looking for the phone, you do not assess all the found things in the house. You don't go around saying, I'm looking for my keys, but there's my couch and there's my TV and there's my lamp. Glad there. Oh, there's my rug. Glad got that. No. You're turning over everything and you're flipping over everything. And whoever finds the keys of the phone shouts out to everybody else in the house, what? Found it. If you're looking for your phone, you're probably talking on it while you're looking for it. Anybody else do that? You're talking to your friend. You're like, I cannot find my phone. I'm looking all over this house. They're like, uh. That's what you do. But Jesus hopes that we get the metaphor. Because he's not talking about a phone or keys. He's not even really talking about a sheep. He's not talking about a number. And he's not talking about a statistic. The one isn't a percent. It's a person. It's someone you love. It's your daughter your nephew, it's your coworker, it's your son's best friend, it's your kid's soccer coach, it's your boss, it's your neighbor, it's a person. Maybe you even feel like it's you today. You see, that changes the tone, doesn't it? When we realize that that one is someone who was made in the image of God, one who was created to be a child of God, the 99% isn't acceptable, only 100% is acceptable to God because all of us and each and every one of us was created to be a child of God. 
And when it's personal, when it's a person, it's different. This is a picture of my oldest son, Morgan. I just finished up football season. He, he plays for Vestavia. There was a time he wasn't taller than me. <clears throat> there was time he was just a little bitty t-ball player. He was five in this picture when he played for the Cincinnati Reds. And his brother that year played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And we were at a new park that season because we had just moved and, um, to, that, to that park. And I'll never forget, there was a game that his little brother Tanner, uh, who Morgan was five at this time, and Tanner was three, and we had Walker, who was just a newborn one. He was in a stroller, and Brooks was, was not a twinkle in our eyes yet. And uh, Tanner's game had just gotten done. The Pirates had just gotten finished playing. And it was one of those parks that had, like, fields all around, and then there was, a, like, a little playground in the middle. You ever seen a park like that? And so Tanner's team had just gotten done, and the coach was giving out snacks, juice boxes, the game ball, and giving the little post-game speech about how great they played to three-year-old t-ball players. Um, so we were kind of there, and while they were doing that, Morgan wanted to play on the playground behind us, so we, that was fine. I mean, it was literally like 15 feet away, so we kind of kept, kept an eye on Morgan, and we're listening, half listening to the coach and watching Tanner and telling Tanner, be still, listen to the coach and all that. And in just one instant, when Emily and I had both turned our attention to the coach and to Tanner, and we got Walker there in the stroller, and we turned back to the playground, and we can't find that little boy. And all of a sudden, we leave Tanner and Walker right there in the stroller, and we begin screaming Morgan's name and running around the playground to see if we're missing him somewhere in that. And then we begin running around the park. And I'm sure it was only about 60 seconds or maybe 90, but it was the longest 60 to, second, 60 to 90 seconds in our lives. And we finally found Morgan at another field that looked just like the field we were at. And he had gotten confused and walked to the wrong field and tears were streaming down his face and another adult had him and he said, I'm looking for my mommy. And we found him and I gave him the biggest hug I'd ever given him in my life. You ever lost a child at a park or a grocery store or at the beach for just a, just a... It's not chaos like you lost your keys panic and what Jesus is saying is that when God looks out at the world and he sees his little ones who were lost in his heart is the panic of a parent willing to do anything and everything to reach them to get them to find them that's how God feels about everyone who feels lost, about everyone who hasn't made it back home or who has never been at home with God in the first place. And that's why our church will never say that we are big enough, we have reached enough, or we have done enough as long as there is one person in Birmingham that doesn't know Jesus because we are for that one. And we have a vision to be a church of 10,000 people, but we have a heart for one, because one matters.
One is worth it because everyone is worth it. I mean, we could all be that one. We could all be the one that Jesus is talking about, that God is chasing after, that this shepherd is chasing after. And it's so interesting to me, there's two crowds listening to the story, right? There's the Pharisees, and then there's these sinners. And, and I, don't, I don't think Jesus is just trying to tell this just to get onto the Pharisees. I think it's an invitation to the Pharisees to see the world how God sees the world. And I think it's an invitation to those sinners and those tax collectors who are listening, who are far off to know that God is for you, that you are worth it. And I want you to know, friends, that you are worth it, that you're worth it, no matter what. If you hadn't been to church in 10 years, you're worth it. If you lied to the person you love most, you're worth it. If you've been divorced, you're worth it. If you cheated your business partner out of money, you're worth it. If you're an addict, you're worth it. If you cuss a lot, you're worth it. If you don't pray near as much as you should, you're worth it. If you've had an affair, you're worth it. If you betrayed your family, you're worth it. If you've never cracked open a Bible, you're worth it. And if you have shaken your fist to the heavens because you're angry at God, you're worth it. If you feel lost and alone and empty and you feel like God is ashamed of you, I want you to know something, you're worth it. You're worth it. Everyone is worth it, no matter what. Now, if we're going to live this out as a church, and if you were to live this out in your life, it's fair to ask the question, like, like how, how worth it? Because it turns out that this is not just a metaphor. This is actually an image of an eternal reality. Because Jesus says this, I tell you that in the same way, in the same way, it's like, what'd you say when you find the keys? Found it. In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus said that there's only one thing that causes parties in heaven. There's only one thing that happens on planet earth that changes the landscape of what a day looks like in heaven, and that's when one sinner repents. And I don't know about you, but I wanna be known as a church that throws parties in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? That churches have reputations in heaven? You ever thought about that? I want to get to heaven and people are like, what church did you go to? And you're like, I went to Mountaintop. And, oh, say no more. You guys threw the best parties up here. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, we had more parties because of you guys. One is worth it because everyone, every single one is worth it. And we would say, yes, yes, let's throw some parties in heaven. How worth it? Is that one to us? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Martian. Right? Seen that movie? If you haven't seen the movie, it came out in 2015. It was based on a book. It's in the not too near future, uh, not too far away future, though, because it's, it's when we've sent our first astronauts to Mars. And they're there to do research and uh, Man, there's some storms that come up and they really have to cut the mission short to get on their ship to come back to Earth 
and they're not going to be able to fulfill everything that, they were, that NASA had sent them to do to take samples of dirt and all that. And in, the, in the, the scramble in the storm to get back to the ship, Mark Watney, one of the astronauts, is hit by some flying debris, and they believe that he's been killed. And there's, there's no time to even go get his body because if they try, they're, they're not going to make it. So this six-person crew only comes back to Earth uh, in their ship. They, they only load the ship with five of them. They're heartbroken. And a few months later, they find out that Mark Watney has not died. And he has been left on a planet all by himself, one person on a planet, on a deserted planet. It's four months later that the crew finds out. And NASA has a huge decision to make. How much is one person worth? Economists who've seen the movie say that they estimate that the cost to, to go rescue him is $200 billion. It will take the crew another year and a half in space away from their families, risking their lives to go find him. And they have to ask the question, is it worth $200 billion? Is one person worth $200 billion? Is one person worth another year and a half in space? Turns out they have to get the whole world to help. They have to get China and a rocket from China to go, to go be a part of the mission to, to go rescue him. And the whole world is involved and the whole world is invested in it. And at the very end of the movie when they're trying to make this dramatic rescue they show scenes in London and Paris and Times Square and China and Japan and Moscow and the whole world is listening to the radio feed. And when she says, Houston, we got him. The whole world on every street corner erupts in praise. It turns out one person was worth it when we really thought about it. And I wanna ask you something. I mean, it's easy for us to get emotional and say, oh, yeah. What's one worth? Is it worth you serving? Or are you going to be like, eh, I don't know if I can give up an hour on Sunday mornings. Is it worth you tithing? Or is it like, eh, I don't know if they're worth that much. Is it worth you really committing is it worth you praying for that friend, that coworker, that neighbor? Is it worth you getting over the butterflies in your stomach and actually inviting them to church? Listen, aren't they worth everything? Well, listen, for 60 to 90 seconds when I was running around a park looking for a five-year-old Morgan, I would have given up every penny I had to find that one. I had always, here's, here's the interesting thing about this. I had always read this passage. It's kind of a scolding of the 99, right? Like you, the, kind of a scolding of the Pharisees. You really need to be caring about the one. Until I read this passage a couple years ago when something jumped out at me I, I had never seen before. You may have missed this. We read it the first time. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
And I just began to think about that. Because I'd always thought like, oh, Jesus is telling us that the 99 people in the church walls need to get out and look for the one. And I just thought, where in the world can you find 99 persons who are righteous and don't need to repent? Is that you? That ain't me. I think there's only one place. Heaven. See, the metaphor, the story, is Jesus is not saying that he left the church walls and the 99 inside to go looking for the one. The metaphor is that Jesus left heaven to come looking for you and to come looking for me because none of us is righteous and all of us need to repent and every one of us is the one. We are for one because Jesus was for every one of us. That's it. We're for one because Jesus was for every one of us. That's the heart of God. We follow Jesus and we're for one because that's who Jesus was for. That's what Jesus were for. And we, if we care about one because that's what Jesus cares about. And if you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you and I need to care about the things Jesus cares about. It was worth Jesus leaving heaven. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we have a God who is willing to come running after even one, even me, and even you, no matter what you've done? That's the love of God. That's the love of God that compelled a father to send his one and only son. That's the love of God that compelled Jesus to look at his disciples the night before he was to die the next day and say, this is my body broken for you. It's the same love that compelled Jesus to grab the cup at dinner and say, this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you have this this meal, every time you gather in my name, I want you to remember me. And I want you to remember, listen church, listen to me, listen. Don't, don't, don't grab the little thing or if you're at home, not yet, look at me. I want you to remember that you were worth his body and you were worth his blood. Thank you, Jesus that you weren't just for one. You're for every one of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this love. Thank you for this love that is undescribable, that we don't deserve. Thank you for this love that comes running after us, no matter where we are. And there's some of us here today, God, that are thinking that we might be too far gone, and Lord, my prayer is that they would know that you would leave everything behind if you could just find them. There's some of us that are thinking of a friend that feels that way. And Lord, help us be willing to do anything and everything to reach them. 
thank you for your body, for your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to lead us in a song to close. And uh, in just a moment, you can stand and sing with us. But at the beginning of that song, I want you to just take that communion, if you're at home or you got it here, and eat that little cracker and have that juice. And I want you to just take a moment to say, thank you, God, for reaching me wherever I was at. And I want you to think of one. You're one. Who's your one that thinks they're too far gone? And I want you to just say a prayer for them. This song speaks of this love. Overwhelming. Never ending. Some might even say, it's darn near reckless. Because he's willing to do anything for one. Let's stand and sing.